Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Avery, so good to see you. I know you had a couple of weeks off. You were on vacation. Well-deserved. Some big news upon coming back. So I want to get into that. But first, I saw, Avery, that you were at CES. I saw some crazy technologies coming out of CES. And I just wanted to like hear from someone who's on the ground. What was it like? What was the vibe? What were you excited about? What did you see? Give us your CES review. Well, first, thank you. I think I'm accepting a congratulations for you. Indeed, big news. We will get into that. So this was my first time back in six years. The last time I was at CES, I actually was working at Google, which is a very different experience to, you know, going and representing VaynerX in this capacity. I really enjoyed CES. It was awesome. I walked the floor. I went to a bunch of industry events. I met with a bunch of partners and just kind of observed what was happening. Showflow wise, there were a couple of sort of bigger standout pieces of hardware that I thought were really interesting. Hyundai had this sort of self-driving vehicle, which was kind of cool. It looks a little bit like a helicopter. Samsung had this like little yellow robot that I thought was very cool. And of course, LG's transparent TV was kind of the talk of the town. Those are the three that stood out to me the most personally. But on the marketing front, so many people were there. CES really felt like a reunion in a lot of ways of sort of media people, marketing people coming together in Vegas. Logistically, they have moved CES back a week. So it's not right after New Year's. I think that helps in drumming up interest and excitement from business folks and technologists um, who don't have to rush there right after their holiday break. But show flow wise, it was across multiple different conference rooms. I know you'll appreciate this as someone who's put on many a conference. That part was actually a little bit clunky and it was almost hard to find the things that you wanted to, to find. So I really enjoyed it, learned a lot, and it was fun to meet up with Vayner partners and many, many people from my Google history. So interesting. The LG transparent displays. I've been going to CES off and on for probably 10 years. And we saw those 10 years ago, right? Both LG and Samsung had had them. And I think the difference that I felt this year was that there was a much wider form factor to it. Like it wasn't just confined to a 69. So I think people started to say, oh, we can use these in retail, we can use them in corporate. But it, it is one of those things that it feels like the TV industry just wants to keep pushing us that at some point, we will have a transparent display a la Minority Report and some of the, the kind of sci-fi that we've seen. And I keep wondering if it's actually going to happen. So it was interesting to see it bubble up again because it almost feels just like every two or three years, a new audience comes and they get wowed by actually the same thing that they've been showing for years. Oh, and self-driving vehicles are also like those have been happening for a very long time. There was also a bunch on drones and sort of drone delivery, which we've also been seeing for several years. It, you know, Sam, you always have that appropriately discerning POV there was nothing that was totally net new, nothing that I was like, oh my God, I've never thought of such a thing. So yeah, it was a little bit of a progression, but not totally net new. Um, and because I haven't been in several years, maybe that's why I 
still was impressed with the transparent displays. One of the things that got a lot of buzz, and I wanted to know what you saw on the show floor, were these connected AI devices. So Revit.tech was one of the ones that has gotten a lot of buzz. We're trying to get them to come actually on the show and talk about that soon. The idea of AI agents that you carry around with you, whether it's the Humane Pin, now with Rabbit. Uh, Rabbit sold out 50,000 units already in the first week, which is a pretty amazing number. I'm sure there's a lot of talk of AI, but did you actually see a lot of like AI applications that were interesting to you? There was a ton of talk of AI. And I think, you know, 2023 was the year of AI and 2024 probably will be as well. Probably every single partner that I spoke to was talking about AI, often in ways that we thought about, were familiar with, but kind of moving from like talking at a high level to like practically talking about it, which I like that progression. I think AI was across everything. It was embedded in the hardware side of things. It was, of course, embedded in software, also embedded in a lot of the media conversations. So that was a through line, but nothing that was a complete net new, wow, I'm absolutely shocked by this use. Nothing like the first time I saw Midjourney where I was truly like, wow, I'm actually incredibly impressed. It's so funny. Every year it feels like CES has like a thing. And I kind of thought that Gen AI would be the thing this year. It was a material difference to your point. When, when autonomous vehicles started to really show up on the show floor, there was an entire auto wing. It's sort of shocking that AI did not show up in a way that was groundbreaking for you as someone who's like clearly looking to see what the opportunity is. Did you see anything in the like gaming immersive worlds area that was interesting to you? Did see some stuff that I thought was really interesting. More of a continuation, though. It's more of a development. It's like building on what's already there and taking it to the next level, making it more practical, I think, is a theme across all of these different things, right? It's not just like this might exist in a display at CES, but like, hey, this is something that we could use in the near future, which I like. I think there's sort of that emphasis on practicality. I don't want to um, diminish the role that AI played this year at CES because I do think there are a lot of companies who are integrating it. But maybe just we were so blown away 18 months ago by the image generators and they continue to get like exponentially better. But that I think was a very clear use case of something that we truly like hadn't seen before. Now that has developed in so many sort of other ways. Um, it continues to get better and better and better and better. I think also a lot of times when these companies are referring to leveraging AI, they're really leveraging machine learning that they've been doing for quite a long time. You know, we're talking about Samsung or LG or all these media companies, like they're talking about a, you know, they've been investing in for a really long time. And now, of course, they're taking it up. But I continue to see this sort of like reclassification of like machine learning algorithms to AI, because that's like the in-trend thing to talk about. A lot of times that's not necessarily net new information or, or product development. It's actually building on something that they've been investing in significantly for many years. I also want to pick up on something you said, which was that marketers, brands, media were all converging. To me, that also reflects the theme, some of which you also talked about in your prediction for this year, but Art Basel was a big brand moment. CES is, I think, again, becoming a big brand moment, which it was happening before the pandemic. South by is coming up in two months. That's probably going to be another one. And to your point, these big moments where we get a lot of people in the same area as a content experiential opportunity just feels like something we should be also double clicking on. If this is a moment that brands should be saying, we can control our narrative, we can control our content outflow. We can figure out ways to position ourselves as both innovative, cultural, artistic, whatever it may be. And do you see this as part of the core marketing strategy that any kind of mid-tier to big brand should be utilizing as a way to get their message out and especially digitally? Yeah, um, you know, I love events for content. That's a big strategy that we try to employ at Vayner. If I were like a tech company or a tech startup, absolutely, I would be there. I think the consumer marketers are more there because CES is a bit of a cultural thing as well. 
But if they want to position themselves in the conversation around tech, around culture, around innovation, like CES is a great place to be. I'll give one example, actually, of being a partner. So Tropicana Orange Juice is probably not a brand that you would think of as like going to CES, but they had their whole leadership team there. Their CEO was actually there and they did a kind of a fun stunt where they passed out orange juice, but they removed the letters A and I out of the Tropicana logo just because there's nothing artificial about Tropicana. They knew AI was going to be the big topic, kind of nods to that. So I thought that that was like a fun kind of way to play. But there are a lot of consumer brands there, a lot in the CPG space, a lot of the sort of financial services space, beauty, healthcare, you name it, brands who are there also to hear what's new and next, particularly on the media side. I think less so sort of creative brand marketers and more sort of media folks, because the media vendors do a lot there. They do a lot of entertaining, whining and dining and helicopters around the Grand Canyon and whatnot. So I do think it's a brand moment. And then if I were representing a a brand who's trying to connect with that audience, like CES is undoubtedly like a place where innovators and technologists are going to spend time to learn, to hear what's next. The coach team the SVP uh, and leader of Coachtopia, June Silverstein, was also there talking about the innovation that they're tapping into uh, through Coachtopia and reducing the amount of waste, recycling, creating this sort of net new model. And that's another great example of a brand who can be in that conversation of sort of innovators by being there. And of course, make sure that that message is shared across on social and is shared wider to the technologists who are looking into what happened to CES, but might not have been there on the ground. I also think there's an insight there that should be thought about through folks who might be listening, which is often the juxtaposition of a brand like Tropicana, which is very much not technology, but going into that space. It reminds me, I think it was 2018 or 19, I brought American Greetings to CES and we created an entire booth where we basically talked about an entirely new messaging platform that battery life never ran out, that you never had to worry about getting signal. And of course, for American Greetings, it was just a a greeting card. And we did that as a big reveal with like Nick Offerman. And we got just a ton of press because why would an American greeting show up at CES was, is actually a great story that I think Tropicana reminds me exactly of, right? Why is an orange juice company coming to CES? It's such a good conversation moment. Brands also don't recognize that not only is it the kind of thing it wins awards because it's clever, but it's also the kind of thing that like people can connect to very easily, which is part of the goal uh, of us as being marketers. We were chatting about this recently with a, a big sort of story that's happening in the marketing world. But I think that a lot of big household name brands, they don't have a problem with awareness. Everyone knows what Dropicana is. Everybody knows these household names. They have a problem with relevance. And that's actually the sort of elephant in the room that you know agencies and marketers are tasked with is like, how do you make a juice brand relevant to an audience of technologists? Like it's not going to be the most expected thing, but you can leverage that sort of juxtaposition in a way that's like fun and that is a little bit buzzy, but that also gets people drinking orange juice, which is the end goal. I think people are kind of craving these like collabs right now, like the unexpected collabs are killing it. Another one um, that I saw yesterday that I really liked was the Kith and Bose collab. Jim Mullica and, and his team are amazing. Kith, of course, just does a chef's kiss job with all of yeah. their collabs. But there's a bit of like oversaturation of some collabs, but the unexpected ones, I think, like really, really hit in a nice way that people love that. Oh, I wasn't expecting to see this brand in this way. And I feel like it, it can be something that is a total win for both sides of those audiences. What are some of your favorite collabs recently though, Sam? Because you've always got your eye on this. I mean, I sort of actually look at this through a different lens right now, which is I think the idea of doing collaborations for the gram, if you will, which I think is is happening a lot recently, is something that is a tried and true tra- tactic. I'm starting to doubt the 
the opportunity of creating collab simply for collab sake versus what is actually going to get results. I know you and I were chatting this past week about the solo stove and Snoop issue, right? Their CMO ended up resigning and they kind of blamed it on this collaboration with Snoop Dogg that Solo and he had done together by saying it drove awareness, but it didn't drive results. This was also something that we saw a long time ago, I don't remember, with Burger King when they were doing these like very quirky commercials. The King himself was showing up in really kind of creepy ways at uh, different restaurants and all this stuff. And I remember that the franchisees started to complain. They said, hey, this is actually creating like not results, even though you're getting a lot of attention for this. And so I think that the idea of can this drive purchase is something that I think is really essential, right? You look at someone like Supreme. Supreme built their brand on collabs, but you know, it was Nike, it was North Face. It was something where you had like-minded audiences getting together and people were, were lining up. And I can see that something like Kith and Bose makes total sense. You have the same audience there, right? I, w- I don't think it's the same audience. I think it's an overlap though, that it is not 100%. And that's the reason that it works. Right. Where, but whereas the, the Snoop going smokeless, which is kind of what happened with Solo Stove, again, clever, fun, funny, super shareable. But maybe that's a ex- perfect example where Snoop fans getting that Solo smokeless outdoor fire pit it's like a big reach to get there. And maybe the idea that like yeah. results weren't in mind compared to the need for attention. Is that an example of relevance gone bad? Here's my take is one, that is a brand awareness campaign. Like anyone who has spent a lot of time working with celebrity talent, it's very unusual. You would see like an immediate sales lift for something like that, especially because it was unexpected, right? Listeners who haven't seen this done, uh, Snoop Dogg posted that he was giving up smoke and Everyone was guessing what he was going to say. Like it's a lot of people were anticipating he was going to launch a line of gummies because Snoop is America's uncle and he's always selling us something and we love it. And then he posted actually about this sort of fire pit company he's working with that's smokeless. And that got a ton of people looking into the brand. I think they got almost like 70,000 new followers on social channels. I'm sure their traffic skyrocketed. It was very buzzy and got attention. And that only happened in Q4 of last year. It's currently January. So it's a very short window. They actually had a limited edition collab, which sold out, by the way, that they did with Snoop. And in, I guess, the last two months that hasn't driven the the results that they wanted. I did actually look at their earnings report. They're like, we missed earnings by a little bit. It wasn't like a, a huge kind of a miss. So my suspicion is there is more to it than just that ad campaign. Because any marketer would know like, great, this will get people talking about us. It'll create that awareness that, of course, you need to farm and you need to create product marketing ads and educate and explain why you would need this type of thing. That's not the way that a campaign like that should typically be measured as like direct response sales objectives in the immediate term. I also think it takes time to build brand, right? It takes time to tell stories and time to introduce a product and move people down the funnel. But I think the potentially most interesting thing is we're talking about this right now. So they got that first hit of PR. Now they almost got the second hit of PR for letting the executive go for this. I would love to be like sitting in one of their IATs or marketing team meetings right now because they're getting another huge surge of attention. And we always say, don't waste a good crisis. Like there's another opportunity. Maybe they work with Snoop again and make more of a product ad or, or something like that because they, again, have created a moment of relevance, whether they were intending to or not with the departure. So time will tell. And I am rooting for them. I hope that Solo Stove has the best quarter ever of sales and that somebody else hires whoever put together that ad campaign to do something else because 
they did create a lot of relevance. Okay, I agree. I'm also going to push back on you. Full disclosure, I have a solo stove at our country house. Did you buy it after you I saw it? I bought it way before. Uh, my father actually bought it, not me. And it is a great product. I'm gonna give, uh, I will give it that. My pushback is that I do think a lot of, when I think of like interesting collabs over the last bunch of years, things that stand out to me are things like when Post Malone collabed with Crocs, when Travis Scott collabed with McDonald's, like the Mr. Beast Burger, all of these things had such tangible results at retail that I think that there is maybe the false assumption that all celebrity collabs drive sales results. And I think you come from a place which is actually much more strategic, which is some things are really for awareness and not going to like drive the registers. And some things are total transactional plays. And like our friend Ricky Engelberg broke this down very well in one of our chats, just about how that type of a sales cycle is probably 12 to 18 months. This couldn't have been about this new partnership, but it may have been the kind of thing where did someone actually get approval the right way? Did they spend more than they thought? Like there's so many other things that go into this. It's so funny how the marketing world also will, will glom on to a challenge and glom onto a failure sometimes as a reason to justify their own personal biases about this stuff which is also like a fascinating aspect of just being inside this brand and comms world. And I think what you're kind of getting at is this sort of celebrity CMO, like egoification of campaigns. And, and that's actually something that's been a, a hot topic recently is people trying to do this work for fame, for our listeners who are deep in the marketing world. A lot of the work that actually goes on at award shows, a lot of that has historically not even been work that's gone live or that's gone live at scale. It's kind of done to win awards, um, which is so silly and ridiculous if you're not in the marketing world. But if you are in the marketing world, you're like, oh yeah, of course, like, that's an award campaign. A lot of that is kind of due to like sort of keeping up with the Joneses in the industry and doing something even more ridiculous that even more people are talking about. But at Vayner, you know, our philosophy is everything has to be tied to driving business results. Relevance drives business results. It has to be the right kind of relevance. It can't be to like off the wall and unhinged. And it has to be done in the right like format, the right channel, the right way that um, is designed to drive results for the brand. Because so you brought up Mr. Beast. I was actually in Namibia over the holidays and I went to a gas station and I went to go get a water and there was a giant end cap that was bright blue and it had Mr. Beast's head on it. And I was like, is that the Mr. Beast candy bar? And it was with a really amazing placement in Namibia. And I was like, wow, this is a YouTuber who has actually scaled his brand to the far corners of the world, to rural Africa. Feastables clearly has worked. Plenty of celebrity fragrances and celebrity makeup palettes and celebrity sodas have not worked. But I think broadly, people sell products. Awareness of celebrities sells products. That has been proven time and time and time again. Celebrities work for marketing. And actually, one of the points I think that brings up is that celebrities also work very well overseas. Japan, notorious for bringing every celebrity under the world to sell a whiskey brand, a watch brand, some other lifestyle moment, because people over there really look at America as being so influential in the ways that we also look at Japan as being influential. So I do think that's also a great insight. And going back to your celebrity CMO comment, Avery, we couldn't have this conversation without recognizing you as the newest celebrity CMO of Vayner. Can you tell us a little bit what your new role is, what you're going to be focusing on, and also just super excited and congratulations for getting there. Thank you so much. I don't know about celebrity CMO. I, I would just say new CMO for now. I'm really excited about this. Spent a lot of time in digital marketing for the last six years doing a lot of work for other brands, which has been really fun. So now it's going to be a new chapter and a new challenge to take on the Vayner brand, one that I think is very strong, but 
we always have room to improve our own awareness and relevance and conversion with our target demographics. So I'm really honored for the, this new chapter. And I am officially the global CMO of VaynerX. I think it'll bring a new dimension to some of these conversations. You know, I'm a huge believer in emerging tech, I'm really interested in this personally. And the last three years at Vayner3, I've gotten to do some really amazing work with some of the biggest and best brands in the world across all things Web3, across crypto, across immersive experiences, across AI. I'm excited to put some of that into practice with our marketing as Vayner. You know as well as I do that agencies are notorious for doing a horrible job marketing themselves and a great job marketing their clients. And it's because we don't put the same resources to our own marketing that we do, of course, towards like client work. I'm excited for you. I think that, that you are one of the smartest marketers out there in general. When you say that you're looking to sort of pivot this to the Vayner brands, you have a variety of services offerings that you guys give, but you also, with things like vFriends and some of the other stuff that maybe Gary's involved with, it feels like you're also incubating your own sort of consumer first brands. So are you across both B2B and B2C? Yeah, it's a good question. So VaynerX includes like nine different companies, all sort of owned by Gary. And most of those are focused on helping brands succeed. We have Vayner Media, which is a core business and advertising agency. As you know, we have Vayner 3, we have Vayner Speakers, we have all these sort of different brands, a production house called Even No Sedam. We have a publisher called Gallery Media Group. So excited to jump into some of those. And also, as you noted, Gary is notorious for incubating brands, whether it's Empathy Wines, friends or others sort of in that umbrella. Sometimes those are part of VaynerX, sometimes those are outside of it. But that's always a fun challenge too, is doing the sort of B2C stuff or helping with that. But my core charge will be mostly VaynerMedia and, and some of the other ones focused on both expansion of products um, and services that we offer clients and also geographic expansion, which I'm really excited about. So more info on that coming soon. But it's just been a cool thing to be a part of a company that's gone from 500 to 2000 in the last few years that I've been here and see so many people that I brought into the company like continue to grow and succeed. It's just fun to see how things evolve because we know change is the only constant. Opportunities kind of come and go and we have to reinvent ourselves just like any brand. Gary also has a new book coming out soon um, that I'm very excited about helping fold into our narrative as Vayner because it's called underpriced attention. And it's really like about Gary's like theories on marketing. It's literally a textbook. I'm going to send you one. Well, I hope you take a little bit of credit for that growth also, because you have been a champion both of the brand and have also, I think, been such a good thought leader in our space. Thank you for that. And congratulations. Let's start getting to some of the stories we wanted to talk about this week. So I saw a stat that I thought was really fascinating, which was that Roblox in the month of December hit 355 million monthly active users, which is larger than the deduplicated Switch, Xbox, Minecraft, PlayStation combined, which I thought was just really fascinating how big this sort of entity has grown, how much relevance it is. What was interesting in that, and this was a tweet from, I believe Matthew Ball put out there, which was that yet even at that size, PlayStation, for example, has 10 times the revenue that Roblox has. So it made me think about the idea that is this in some respects the Amazon play? You get the yeah. widest possible audience and then you start figuring out your monetization. One of the stats that was quoted was that they spend $1.45 for every dollar in Robux that comes in, which I also thought was kind of interesting. Is this something where they're really setting the stage now for that future opportunity where this can become one of the more successful sort of digital worlds, immersive brands that we exist, both playing, hanging out, interacting with brands and each other. 
it doesn't really surprise me because I think like everyone says that they're first, but Roblox like actually is user first. Like there's so many things they'd be monetizing so much more and they choose not to, right? Because I think they want people to be there and also spend a lot of time. The average like Roblox player spends something like almost two hours per day. It's like a lot of time mm-hmm. because they're not inundated with ads. And I think if you go anywhere else online or in person, you're just like, oh, messages inundated with ads. Um, and I think that that slower monetization is 100% strategic and intentional. Part of that is also, though, due to the young nature of a lot of their players, like they're not allowed to monetize a lot of those players. So I, I, we can't forget that part. Like part of it is strategic and intentional. Part of it is they have a very young user base and there are very you know, clear laws and guidelines in the United States, not in every single market. Um, and I think they have really a user first approach, but those kids are going to grow up. And if Roblox can retain them, then they are set up, I think, for a lot of success. And, you know, Amazon's been an incredible case study of patience of just growing and losing money and growing, losing money and growing, and losing money. And then all of a sudden they kind of like gradually turn up the monetization and that's going quite well for them. I also think about it, though, through the lens of something like TikTok. TikTok was a client of mine in 2020 when they were a very small team here and they were just getting a ton of traction and growth. And it was a very fun place in that first year. When I go on TikTok now, I feel so overly sold to. I don't know about you. Like TikTok shop to me has completely degraded the experience because it's like every third swipe you do is either being sold or alive and the lives are all about monetizing the creator. So it does feel that once you add profit need into the mix, that it does challenge the product. I think your observation about the fact that their audience is somewhat young, while accurate, but $50 billion in digital assets have been spent so far on cosmetic in-game objects, right? So that audience is fiending for those things. And so I could see the idea of this becoming a little Times Square if we don't watch out, where these kids are being hit with so much stuff and they don't have the filters that an adult has to say, I know I'm being marketed and sold to. It's my wariness is what happens when, when you look at something like PlayStation, which has 10 times the revenue today, it's because they sell games, right? Like they're consistently able to make more money on the fact that they're always creating a new game that someone wants to buy every three months, where Roblox, it sort of, you have to keep the world full of the integrity of what your audience wants. And the more you sell to them, it may create one, bad desire behaviors. And then two, it might create people starting to say, oh, I'm going to go find the next place where I'm not being monetized as much. Because you're not, when you buy the latest Madden and the latest Forza, you're being advertised to because people are buying in-game advertising and marketing, but it's really a passive experience. It doesn't require a purchase. And I think that that to me is something we just got to keep our eyes on. Sam, have you ever used the Chinese version of this, which is called Doyen? I, I was involved as much as I could back in the day. So that is a lot more commercial than TikTok is. Like now, like yep. it, it, that is um, something that people actually, and this is like a behavior we don't have as much in the US, but it's huge in Asia where like shopping is kind of like the activity, like buying things is a kind of leisure thing. They have this whole trend around Cinderella shoppers where you different promo codes products and packages and whatnot, like be sold very late at night. You're literally just like tuning in to see people like talk about a product and buy it. Um, but, you know, who am I to, to call out a trend like this? I think from your perspective, you don't want to be sold to, but I think some people do. And that's what's driving this like behavior of hyper commercialization. There's unquestionable commercial aspect to TikTok driven by TikTok shops. But I think what we're seeing right now is people actually are resonating with it and are wanting to buy it. And you know, are using this as their search engine, is where they learn about products, is where they almost like comparison shop, um, particularly in this Gen Alpha and Gen Z demographic. I get it. And I think what you're really just saying is I'm old. 
I'm just going to throw out that I also don't want to shop, shop on Instagram and I also don't want to shop at Walmart. So, I, I mean, I. You just don't want to shop. You want to shop at like, a, you know, Brooklyn, like, you know, independently owned business. Okay. I feel like I'm being typecast right now. <laughs> and look, I, I, I can't sort of deny the success of something like Shein, which every young kid gets to purchase. I just question like the efficacy of what it means to be sold to at every place that we exist in our lives. And if people are spending that much time in games, it worries me more than I don't see it as an opportunity. If I was a brand, I would be leveraging TikTok shop all day long right now. I'd be leveraging influencers to help sell. It, it is the style and the way that we should be monetizing product. Okay, do you think Solo Stove should get set up on TikTok shops just to bring this conversation full circle? I think Solo Stove should not only do a TikTok shop, but like, where's the Fortnite world that we need to talk about? Talking about how to monetize consumers, I don't know if you saw, this week was the latest media brand to utilize a connected wallet strategy was Forbes. So Forbes has done something, they're working with Magic. Forbes uses the Magic wallet, and what they're doing is giving six months of free access to anyone who basically creates a wallet. So you basically get subscriber access for free by creating this wallet with Magic. And the thing that just keeps resonating to me is that some connected wallet type behavior as a first party data play, especially in a world where we're seeing cookies being deprecated, feels like something that everyone should at least be paying attention to. So I wanted to get your thoughts on whether you think we're going to get more and more of these kind of opportunities to get people to sort of sign up, if you will, so that you have a login. But it just seems like this is something that is just quietly happening in the background and people should be paying attention to. What are your thoughts? I really like the Magic team and actually Nemo Huck, who just went over there to sort of lead their studios team. He used to work with me at Vayner 3 and is amazing. So I'm rooting for Magic big time. I like this and I like that they kind of are doing it quietly in a way that like really gives value to consumers versus trying to immediately commercialize. I think that's smart, especially like in the sort of place that we are in the market is like, giving value, giving value, giving value. And then, you know, people really seeing the benefit of having this sort of uh, Web3 connected wallet. So I love it. And I'm also excited, you know, to see how this approach is a little bit different than some of what we've seen from the time, the GQ, because those were different sort of periods mm -hmm. in the Web3 cycle, right? There was the, the come up, then there was the peak, but now you have to be more creative. And maybe more subtle about the way that you're sort of bringing this to consumers than just being like, yes, this is a an NFT thing. And people are like, I want to buy it because I heard that's cool. I love that. And I think that there is something that we should be taking away, which is direct connection where you can then be additive and reward consumers. This feels like a very easy sign up for a thing and you're getting something of value and not asking too much for the consumer is something that people should be paying attention to. And it's not lost on me that the big opportunities around the Starbucks play and the Nike play and the Forbes play and what time does is, is that direct first party relationship that is getting harder and harder in an Apple and Google controlled world. So I think that that's something that we should just be paying attention to. The final thing I want to talk to you uh, about Avery is a tweet that Vayner3 actually reposted, which was, I think, a morning brew graphic that had all of these Amazon store listings where the descriptions basically said this violates open AI terms and conditions, so you can't use it. And it just made me think about that pipeline of AI straight into monetization and commerce opportunities that just feels like we don't even know when we're being AI to anymore, right? How many products on Amazon, how much stuff in Walmart, how many images on Instagram are being generated? And at this point, we're just not even aware of it. And how much is that also degrading our experience in general? I feel like we've been kind of like, 
inching towards this conversation for like almost a year now, right? There's been a few like sort of breakthrough cultural moments where we're like, oh my God, that's AI. But so much of it, you know, we have many friends who leverage AI to create like content posts and they kind of do it transparently, but it's just something that's in people's feeds and you're, they're not really calling out that it's all AI generated from the idea to the copy, to the voice, to the visual. I don't know if it's degrading people's experience though. That's like one, one place like you and I might differ because who are we to say what's degrading versus what's improving their experience? It is undoubtedly creating way more content. It's creating more commercial opportunities. But to me, I know when I'm seeing something that's written by AI or it's an AI visual because I'm very familiar with like the kind of tells, most people are probably not, right? Because I spend a lot of my time thinking about this. But it's also, do they care, right? You're familiar with graphic effects, sound effects. You know when you're watching something on TV that's like, oh, that's not possible. But does everybody know that's not possible? They might think that there's some, you know, amazing video special effects that we know are just like production tricks of the trade, but they might think is like real or possible. When I talk about degrading, by the way, I don't talk about when people use tools for and use care with them. And I think that a lot of folks are doing that very, very well. I think what I look at is just this example that you guys shared was actually how broken that system is, because there's probably just these content engines that are connected into an uh, Amazon API that are just finding anything they can find on Alibaba Express and then auto writing a description, posting it. And, you know, with the whole goal of just saying we're marking up everything 30% and we're just going to try to like get as much as possible. They're playing it at the edges, right? And I think that's where I get suspect. The other thing, which I think is, and someone in one of our, our, our chat groups posted this, like for $5 right now on Civitai, which is like a aggregator of AI tools, you can buy in essence a fashion girl model that you can create an entire Instagram personality with, right? Just reading from what this has, you get like influencer style emulation. They took the images of 700 Instagram models, they sucked them in and then created a filter that is all rendered through AI. It gives you guidance and composition and pose, it like gives you beauty trends and fashion. It's all about hyper-realism and photographs. I mean, that's the kind of thing where we're still at that moment where you with a trained eye can look at an image and say, this feels kind of AI. But like six months from now, that may not be the case, right? That, that realism might come in. And that is where I just think, again, going back to like all of our monetization conversation, that some very smart programmer can probably create a business that is looking at this through the lens of just how do I gamify shopping behavior and put it on steroids utilizing this toolkit all through these APIs. And my whole goal is just to make that 10% and 20% profit margin across the whole thing. And that's what does worry. Drop shipping on, on steroids, right? Exactly. Like just super, super drop shippers. I think that's already happening. I think we should do a whole episode on sort of virtual influencers. I think this is actually a really hot and interesting topic. Maybe we could get on the team who, who does Will and Michaela. That could be really fun. Um, they were like sort of early adopters. We worked with this team in Japan five years ago on a commercial um, for this it was a virtual influencer called Ima. And at the time, that was like, I thought that was insane because virtual influencers were popular in Japan. These VTubers are popular there. It's a, a campaign for Japan. So many virtual influencers are being born. So it'd be really interesting to dive into that topic, to dive into the opportunities, what consumers think about that, and also the risks, because we don't want to downplay that. Are, is this creating very unrealistic standards that are then proliferated wildly? <laughs> we will set that up. And I think let's also address in that episode, this concept that actually Wen and I talked about when she stepped in your chair, when you were on break, but this, this idea of will people value things that have only been touched by human hands more at some point, and whether that's through food, whether that's through art, whether that's through the craft of commerce, you know, clothing, et cetera, that there might be a renewed interest in the same way that 
vinyl came back. You know, will people look at the idea of things that don't have AI overlays might be perceived as more valuable because it was made by human hands? I think that that's actually going to ha happen too. the same way we see like in person becoming a big thing now because yeah. everybody has Zoom fatigue. I think like real will matter. You'll pay a premium for real because there are certain things that like you can only do if you're like a real person. You can only have these wrinkles if you're real. You earn those, Avery. All right. Thank you for so much amazing insight this episode. Welcome back. We're so happy to have you. Gen Z fam, we have some amazing guests lined up coming up in the next couple of weeks. So make sure you tune in. And we will track the meteoric rise of Avery CMO role as she dominates the world of marketing from corner to corner of the globe. So thanks for listening. Avery, any last words? Thanks, Gen C. Let us know what you want to hear about. Is it virtual influencers? Is it more on Web3? Is it more on marketing trends? We'll continue diversifying what we're talking about on this show. And Sam, thank you as always for being the best co-host, the best cheerleader. Love everything that we're building. Gen C everywhere. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.